Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of uh, having on the podcast uh, Dr. Uh, Evan Smith, who is at Women's Hospital in Louisiana, and uh, a prior uh, guest and uh, a routine uh, visitor to our podcast, Dr. Mary Lateo, who is at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, obviously, we all know uh, know him, and uh, we're really, really very, very glad to uh, have you both on the on the podcast. The podcast is going to be uh, discussing a very important, interesting article that was published in our journal uh, titled Primary Characteristics and Outcomes of Newly Diagnosed Low-Grade Endometrial Stromal Sarcoma. So uh, guys, welcome to the uh, podcast and thank you once again for accepting the invitation to uh, participate. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So um, obviously a, a topic that although rare when, uh, when presenting um, to us, uh, oftentimes there's a lot of discussions with regards to how do we manage patients with uh, low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma. So Evan, I'm gonna start with you and I uh, was wondering if we can start by discussing as to how prevalent is endometrial stromal sarcoma and could you share with us the, the terminology of the, I believe, four WHO classifications of endometrial stromal uh, tumors? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma as a whole is a, is a very low prevalent disease. Um, if you separate endometrial or uterine cancers into uh, epithelial cancers, that's where the majority of them um, you'll find, and then you have the mesenchymal tumors, which is where the endometrial stromal sarcomas fall into place. Um, it is uh, the second most common type of mesenchymal tumor, but overall represents less than 1% of all uterine malignancies. Um, and the most common type of mesenchymal tumor would, of course, be leiomyosarcoma. Um, that classification got mixed up a little bit when um, when carcinosarcoma was reclassified as an epithelial tumor several years ago. Um, but overall, the, the take-home point is that it's a very rare type of tumor. The, um, the classification of or terminology for endometrial stromal sarcomas has evolved a lot over the last 50 plus years. I think the first classification of stromal sarcomas came about in the 60s. And um, now that we know so much more about the, uh, the molecular characteristics of it, I think we've gotten quite a bit better about classifying them. And then the WHO currently um, divides the classifications into endometrial stromal nodules, which is a benign entity, and low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma, high-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma, and then undifferentiated uterine sarcomas, which is really a diagnosis of exclusion when you have a high-grade malignancy or high-grade sarcoma that doesn't really fit well into the um, high-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma category. Great. So um, now I wanted to uh, uh, jump into the next question with regards to what should be the standard treatment. And I'll, I'll ask Mario if you can talk about, um, you know, certainly when we see a patient with either early stage disease or advanced stage disease, what should be the standard recommendation for, for these patients with low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma? Yeah, it's a great question. And fortunately, most of these cancers do present as earlier stages. Uh, you can see it uh, advanced stage, of course, but most of these are, are earlier stage. And, uh, and many of them are in younger women, too. So fertility concerns are also um, a part of uh, a discussion. But in general, endometrial stromal sarcoma, as many other sarcomas, are best treated with surgery. So uh, obviously, stage one, clinical stage one and two confined to the cervix or uterus, you do a hysterectomy. 
Uh, for fertility, it really is, uh, you have to be very cautious doing myomectomy for these patients um, because there's a, there is a high risk of recurrence and there have been bad outcomes reported, but there have been reports of women who have gone on to have children, but that is not something we strongly recommend and needs to be done very cautiously. So, and generally, uh, and many of these women are diagnosed after myomectomy elsewhere and then come to us or, because uh, this is a diagnosis that you rarely get preoperatively also. Um, so again, the, the best treatment for early stage is just a, a removal of the uterus cervix. We do recommend also removal of uh, at least the tubes, of course, but also the ovaries in these women, regardless of age. Uh, if you put all the data together, all retrospective, of course, but uh, it, removal of the ovaries does reduce the risk of recurrence, although there is no overall survival impact because many of these cases, many of these patients can be salvaged at the time recurrence, even if the ovaries are retained. So it's a difficult conversation. Um, and it would be reasonable for a woman to say that she really wants to keep her ovaries in. But at the same time, we do recommend and counsel them that it's probably best to remove the ovaries. Because even though recurrence can be salvaged, some of those surgeries can be quite extensive. I'm sure we've all done these very extensive surgical resections and sometimes exenerative type procedures for recurrent ESS. Uh, in terms of lymph nodes, we really don't do anything with lymph nodes. Uh, if the pre-op scan uh, shows no enlargement of lymph nodes and intraoperatively, there's no enlarged lymph nodes. We don't we don't take out lymph nodes, and we've toyed with the idea of central node mapping. But again, at the same time, microscopic disease doesn't really matter. So, honestly, in my practice, I don't do anything with the lymph nodes if there's no extra obvious nodal disease. For advanced staged, and then after that, then really there's nothing else to be done. No radiation, no adjuvant therapies, none of that stuff. Nothing is nothing's made a difference as far as we can tell. And then it's just close observation. Uh, for the advanced stage uh, cases, which fortunately are few and far between, those definitely need the ovaries out, uh, as well as the uterus uh, cervix, of course. And we do proceed with uh, an extensive debulking procedure uh, for these cases. Because um, surgery, again, complete resection is, is, is the best option. If you can't get a surgical resection, it's going to be a tough management. However, if they're a young patient, they still have their ovaries, sometimes just removing the ovaries you have, we have seen responses just from simply removing the ovaries and, and eliminating estrogen. There's reports of that as well as in the recurrent setting where you've seen a, a almost complete response after just removing the estrogen hmm. uh, from, from the woman. So again, it's basically surgery pretty much. Um, if you can't operate and have residual disease, um, then, you know, then you're looking at systemic therapies, which currently aren't the greatest and or hormonal based therapies, uh, which aren't the best um, for this disease. Great. And Mary, I'll just take advantage of the fact that you actually did bring it up uh, because we actually have had also patients and, and many of our listeners may encounter this scenario. You mentioned for the patient that comes to you after myomectomy, you know, and typically, obviously, the, the, the patient has had imaging studies that sort of say, well, you know, can't tell post-surgical changes versus there's anything residual there. Um, if you could just like briefly uh, address it, what, what do you do with those patients that you have an incidental found finding of a low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma in a patient who still has a uterus, an ideally young patient? Yeah. So again, we, we, do, we, do, we don't favor fertility preservation. So we make it in our counseling that we would highly recommend, strongly recommend hysterectomy, whether the MRI is normal or not. We would get an MRI if there is any question that she's debate, that patient's debating. And if obviously there's any abnormality of any concern and there's, then it's a patient that's I think making a wrong decision to keep the uterus, unfortunately. Now, if the MRI is entirely normal, you still would strongly recommend the hysterectomy. However, if they're motivated, 
and they're going to follow up closely um, and understand the risks that they may be taking. I, I think in a very select patient who is willing to try once and have a child quickly, then it would be reasonable and then do a completion hysterectomy. I would not ever promote more than one child and even trying to have that one child is going to be some somewhat of a challenge. There are reports of it, but the recurrence rate with the uterus retain is, is extremely high. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Very well. So um, let's get back to uh, Evan. Uh, I think obviously you, you did this study while, while you were at, uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, tell us a little bit about the rationale for performing this study. Um, what did you see as the gap in knowledge when uh, you discuss uh, doing this study? Sure. Well, with low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma being such a rare entity, I think the main gap is having enough um, knowledge about the, the disease itself. You know, most of all or all of the data that we have is retrospective in nature. And knowing that um, we have this excellent database with the ability to capture so much retrospective data for this specific entity because of the type of treatment facility I was um, um, training at, I, I just felt like it was a good opportunity to collect the data that we had about it and try to summarize it and add to the, um, the knowledge that we already had on file um, about endometrial stromal sarcomas. Great. Um, so then now, can you tell us a little bit about your methodology? Um, what patients did you include? What patients did you exclude? And just for our listeners, if you can just talk about uh, the concept of strobe as well. Yeah, well, I guess I'll start with the, so strobe is, um, it's a, an international collaborative initiative um, where epidemiologists and journal editors have gotten together and released a strobe statement, which is an acronym for strengthening the reporting of observational studies in epidemiology to really help to um, uh, strengthen the quality of data that's reported in studies. And so strobe is to retrospective studies as what consort is to randomized control trials and what PRISMA is to um, systemic reviews and meta-analyses. So um, it's, a, it's basically a 22 uh, bullet point list of items that you should be reporting in studies. And so we use that as a guide for the methodology and how we approach the study. Um, for this um, article in particular, we looked at patients who presented to um, Memorial Sloan Kettering with a recent diagnosis, primary diagnosis of low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma, or who were diagnosed at the institution with low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma um, from, starting from 1980 to 2019. Um, and, you know, I, I just mentioned that patients were, who presented in the recurrent setting were excluded. Um, patients who uh, patients were only included if they underwent a hysterectomy in their treatment, in the primary treatment. We didn't, we excluded patients who, um, who wanted a fertility sparing approach and underwent solely a myomectomy. Um, and so we, we also excluded all patients with high grade histologies and those with endometrial stromal nodules, which I mentioned earlier is a benign entity. Okay, great. So if I can just expand that a little bit, you know, in terms of, yeah, uh, sure, the of uh, especially retrospective studies, you know, I think people often make a mistake and not even realizing it. You know, if you're looking at outcomes from an initial event, diagnosis of endometrial stromal sarcoma, 
especially if you're a referral center, and then you're looking at outcomes from that initial diagnosis, you can't include patients that presented to your institution only at the time of recurrence. You're biasing towards a recurrent cohort. So that mistake is made often here, especially when fellows begin doing some of their research and among many others that you'd be surprised. They feel like they can just take everybody that has endometrial stromal sarcoma and whether no matter when they showed up and then look at, you know, they, they came only when they recurred and their diagnosis was five years before somewhere else. You absolutely cannot do that. You will have a much higher recurrence rate uh, than is reality. Um, so you have to be very, very careful when you do especially retrospective studies at tertiary centers, especially, or at any center that you only look at patients who presented to your institution at the initial diagnosis or prior to the time of recurrence. Yeah, I'm, I'm, re I'm really glad you, uh, you bring that up. It's a really very important point um, and one to think about. Uh, and particularly also probably, you know, is those patients that are presenting at recurrence are not reflecting the patterns of practice of your institution where often the, the, the treatment might not have been what the guidelines are suggesting in, in, in terms of treatment. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, and Evan, so getting to the results, and then we'll start talking into some of the details. Um, what, what would you say are the, the main take-home points for, for this study? So I think the, the main takeaway that we were able to show is that lymph node dissection um, for low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma doesn't really make a huge impact on survival outcomes um, and should probably reserve to, for those patients with um, clinical lymphadenopathy that's present or lymphadenopathy present on imaging prior to their um, initial procedure. Uh, stage did correlate with progression-free survival favoring earlier stages, but did not correlate at all with disease-specific survival. And those are the main two takeaways. Perfect. And, and we're, we're going to get into some additional questions in, in a second, but I want to um, go back to Mario and ask uh, one of the questions actually from one of our fellows in the journal, Catherine Hicks-Courant, who is at the University of Pennsylvania. And her question is, the data are unique in that they're from a single institution and span a very large period of time. Can you talk more about how you were able to get clinical data from patients back in the 1980s can you speak more about how using 40 years of data may impact your results, particularly you know, whether you think that pathology accuracy, diagnostic abilities, uh, surgical techniques have changed over that, that time span? So uh, Mario, um, be, being the more senior of, of the two participants <laughs> in the podcast, can you take uh, that question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, that's, that's a huge problem. And I think that's a bigger problem. We have such a huge time span for certain diseases, but not all. Um, I think for this particular disease, the, the bigger problem is, uh, is the diagnostic, uh, the pathologic evaluation of what is called an endometrial stromal sarcoma, specifically low-grade. Fortunately, we have great GYN pathologists here over the many years, but so, that still does not negate the fact that things have changed. Uh, so many of our cases were actually re-reviewed by current uh, pathologists with current terminology, not all cases. Um, we had published on, on this topic a few a bunch of years ago with another fellow, so we did have that database. And the way we get clinical data is that the, one of the very nice things about working at our place here is that we have excellent charts uh, and databases that we have maintained. Virginia K. Pierce in the 1940s with Dr. Brunswick started our Virginia K. Pierce database that was all by hand. And I remember me as a fellow pulling all these paper charts and from this record room that, that was maintained for GYN. So, you know, we've fortunately had a very 
robust sort of way to do retrospective review and capture all these data. A lot of our old charts have been scanned into our EMR now, which is the painful part actually for the fellows when they're doing something this far back is actually scrolling through every there's no tabs any longer you have yeah this it says it was it it's called like the brown folder or something it's actually a name for it but you click on it it's like 999 pages you know <laughs> not divided so they're clicking all the time click 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 to go through these handwritten notes from like you know dr Brunchig or not in the 60s you know dr uh dr lewis and all the the many uh you know great geon colleges that have been here prior to my coming so so the thing about endometrial stromal sarcoma is honestly, since surgery is really the best treatment for it, it's not like there's been a change in therapeutic options for these patients. So outcomes are still going to be pretty consistent because there's been no, you know, some great carbotaxol change or, you know, uh, whatever new therapies ever, PARP inhibitors, Bevacid, none of those things really have worked. So it's not like, you know, it's been basically surgery the whole time. So I think a lot of our data, even though it's 40 years old, still will hold up in the current time. The biggest downside, again, like I said, might be that some of these cases may not be truly low grade, but we think that's a small number. Great. And uh, one of the uh, subsequent questions now, getting a little bit more into the results of the study, uh, this one's from Jessica Sun, also one of our fellows, actually, she's here at Anderson. Um, patients with stage one disease did not have a longer disease-specific survival compared to advanced disease. Um could you comment on this as, as it pertains to adjuvant uh, and, and subsequent lines of, of therapy? Yeah, you know, again, I don't think this is uh, sort of the, the lines of therapy because it's very limited. Uh, I think that this, just a, this disease is relatively indolent, even when it's metastasized at the beginning. And the majority of our cases, most of our cases, I'd have to actually pull it up, but I believe most of these cases had no residual at the end of the surgery. Is that correct, Evan? Even our advanced cases? So I think that, yeah, so I think because if you can resect most of these and in the younger patients, you've also removed their ovaries. I think that's probably the reason is that this is a relatively in disease that no matter how it presents, of course, they're more advanced and more, more likely to either recur or those that we haven't done a complete resection have progress, progressive disease. But in general, these, these, these patients can sort of be uh, managed over many, many years. Now, this is not true for every patient. Of course, we have a bad outcomes with with all with any of our patients but i think that's probably what it is it's more nature and biology of the disease than really additional therapies in terms of uh, systemic therapies again we we operate multiple times on these patients over their their lifespan i think i'm up to maybe six or seven laparotomies or surgeries on one patient of mine that can think off the top of my head so we do mm -hmm. keep these patients um going uh, especially if we can surgically resect them Great. And, and uh, this question, I think, Mary, you alluded to a little bit before, but I think this is an important point because a lot of the discussions often about endometrial sarcoma center around ovarian preservation. And I'll ask Evan and Mary, if you want to jump in as well, that would be great. Um, several of our fellows actually asked, uh, you know, NCCN guidelines mentioned that uh, bilateral salpingophorectomy is preferred. Um, you know, certainly oftentimes the diagnosis isn't made until after the surgery. Uh, there are cases where premenopausal patients are asked to go back to the operating room to remove the ovaries in the setting of endometrial sarcoma. Um, tell us a, a little bit more about your counseling uh, regarding this uh, for patients that are um, preoperatively diagnosed with low-grade endometrial sarcoma 
and also for the patients that come to you after they had a hysterectomy and still have their ovaries and their premenopausal. I think my, my counseling would be in line with what the NCCN is still recommending and that um, oophorectomy is the preferred management. And I think that probably, um, I think we're going to have a hard time ever making a very firm, strong, uh, robust statement about saying that it is definitely okay to preserve ovaries in the setting of low-grade endometrial sarcoma. Um, you know, this is, it's, they're almost universally estrogen receptive, estrogen receptor positive, and it's probably fueled by, you know, ovarian um, release of estrogen. And so um, I think that, um, you know, we, we had we had six patients in our database who elected to preserve their ovaries. One of them had a recurrence um, and that their outcome was still overall, overall great. Um, so, you know, I think if a patient is sitting in front of you and begging you to keep their ovaries in the setting of early, like stage one disease, and if they are a very reliable patient and they understand the data and they understand that it's not, um, uh, a, a firm and um, uh, excellent recommendation to, to preserve them, but they're they're willing to uh, to work with you and, and be followed closely. I think it's something that can be considered. Okay, Mary, you have any additional thoughts on that? No, I agree. I mean, it's I'm very big into avoiding sort of surgical menopause and many of the cancers we treat. I'm usually one speaking up when folks just say, just take out the ovaries, even in an ovarian cancer, you know, oh, you got to take out everything. You know, I, I'm very sort of into keeping, because I think that the menopausal side effects for a disease where women live so long, it needs to be considered. Because mm -hmm. if you take out the ovaries, because you're afraid of estrogen, you can never really give them back estrogen either, kind of counterintuitive, right? right? Although right. one can argue giving them back estrogen at a much lower dose than the ovaries would be making. So it's a tough one, right? I, I do tell, and I've had patients, obviously we have some patients of a small number that kept their ovaries, uh, but we do, I do counsel them strongly, you know, that I would recommend taking it out because it lowers the risk of, of uh, recurrence by anywhere from 30 to 40%. Uh, however, you know, if you do, if it does come back, we can always, you know, go back and operate and then you, sh you should do as well. But sometimes those surgeries are, can be somewhat challenging and sometimes you have to bowel, bladder resections are involved with these, with these cases which we've all done. So it's just a conversation with them. I never make people do anything. I just tell them what my thoughts are and what the data are. And then I work with them to, as long as they can express to me that they understand exactly what we're talking about. So, okay, obviously we have a few patients. So if you do keep their ovaries in here, but the vast majority, we kind of do convince them to have their ovaries removed. Yeah, sounds great. And then uh, uh, the next question, actually, you also sort of brushed upon this uh, initially. Um, this is from Hussein El Hajat, one of our fellows in, in uh, France. Um, you know, you mentioned about the issue of lymph nodes. And, and, and I think most would agree that, you know, for this type of cancer, you don't need to do a full pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy and keep the patient under anesthesia for another hour, an hour and a half. But some might say, you know, sentinel lymph node mapping is pretty much harmless and uh, why not do it? I mean, you're right there. Uh, so uh, are you opposed to that? Or what are your thoughts on, on uh, sentinel mapping in this uh, patient population? I'm not sure if there's a lot of data on sentinel lymph node mapping in this population. I think there's no data at all. I've, I've never come across sentinel node mapping for endometrial. Yeah, we have, those, we have those conversations internally, like everything you mentioned, sentinel node is quick. It, well, 
if you know how to do it, of course, if it's quick and usually not uh, uh, very morbid, although you can get some lymphocytes in some patients, you can get obturator palsies. Um, you do run the risk of vessel injury and nerve injury if you're not careful, but that's, those are relatively no numbers. The bottom line comes like this. It, it, even if you found, I always ask myself, one, what's the risk of having a nodal spread? And in our group where there's no adenopathy, it's 3%. You know, it's very low, right? And if you combine everything, that's kind of the number. That's a very low number. And on top of that, if the nodes are positive, am I going to do something different? Probably not. So, you know, I think it's it's a question that, that no one knows the real answer to. If you want to go by what the data is out there, we'd probably say not to do it. But sometimes depends. We kind of do it and we're just more gathering information than anything else, maybe for a future retrospective paper on endometriosis sarcoma. I think either is I think either is fine. As long as patients understand that we have no idea that that's going to do any value to them. Um, and, and, and you're proficient and safe in doing central no mapping. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the other added benefit certainly is that, uh, any paper on sentinel lymph node mapping with low-grade endometrial stromal sarcoma, not only will it provide additional knowledge for us, for patients, but it's pretty much guaranteed to get published if it's well-written. So, uh, Evan, I'll ask you uh, sort of like a subsequent follow-up question of the issue of uh, hormones. Um, You know, it's been proposed that the use of estrogen or tamoxifen may be associated with endometrial stromal sarcoma, I believe you also found the history of hormone replacement therapy was associated with worse disease-specific survival, um, not progression-free survival. What are your thoughts on hormone replacement therapy in this patient population? Um, yeah, I think we have to be careful with the interpretation of it worsening disease-specific survival, but not progression-free survival. Those numbers are small, and probably whenever you see that in data, it's it's probably just a uh, um, an error of the, the data. I mean, it's probably not a, not a very accurate representation. Um, I think it's important to note that the, the thought process of hormone replacement therapy being associated with endometrial stromal sarcoma is in the setting of prolonged use prior to the diagnosis. Um, and so it would kind of, that, that thought process kind of coincides with um, estrogen being the, the main motivator for, for this disease. And so, um, I would, I would favor not using hormone replacement after diagnosis. And I think that that thought process would coincide with my colleagues who treat, who all treat this, this, um, this disease. Uh, Dr. Latavia, anything else to add? Yeah, again, it's a tough, we, we know that this is one of the few cancers we treat that is definitely estrogen dependent um, and removing estrogen can elicit responses in metastatic disease just by doing that in a premenopausal state. And we know that anti, you know, hormonal management is, is a very good management for patients with metastatic disease also. Um, so Lupron or aromatase, any of those are, are, are reasonable options. So in a, in a disease where we're talking about estrogen blockade for as an important part of their management, it's very hard in the same breath to say, oh, we can give you a little hormone back if you're having bad uh, symptoms. I've done that. I've done it in some cases. It's usually for a short period if they're really having bad hot flashes that is affecting their quiet life and nothing else has worked. Uh, I think it's a reasonable thing to consider, but I wouldn't I wouldn't consider keeping them on hormones for the next 20 years either. I think it'd be something that you would do to just get them through a very bad sort of hot flash 
uh, scenarios where it's really affecting their sleep, their quality of life, and nothing else has worked. And I think it, for a short course uh, trial to, to get them through that hard initial period of menopause is reasonable, but you need to have a plan to end it pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, and I think also probably, I don't know if you guys would agree that, you know, the, the, the issue of the finding of hormone replacement therapy, prior use associated with worse survival, it may be that typically it's sort of like guilty by association. If you're on hormone replacement therapy, most likely you're that elderly patient. Who knows if that's a, a group with a higher rate of advanced stage disease. Uh, if you're elderly, you know, perhaps that's a, also a population that did not receive adjuvant treatment when you would have otherwise given it. So sort of like the hormone replacement therapy, guilty by association of having worse outcomes, but just because it is used in a higher risk population. Right. And we weren't able to correct for those things in a multivariate because the number of events is so small. Mm -hmm. It's really not a reliable uh, multivariable uh, analysis to correct for potential confounders, which well, everything you said is very true. Yeah. So uh, another question, uh, just uh, before we leave this topic, uh, Evan, um, is there any evidence as to whether the ERPR status is related to prognosis in patients with these tumors? Well, because they're almost universally ER and PR positive, I don't know that we have any great evidence that would suggest that the, the few who are not ER PR positive behave differently. Um, yeah, and it's probably because also, you know, the, the, you know, as you said, most of them are positive, so you're not going to have enough numbers of the ones that are negative. To, yeah, to right. really uh, determine any any uh, outcomes on that, um, I didn't tease out ERPR positivity status in, in the data interpretations that we did. Yeah, yeah. and we don't. That's the other thing is we don't we don't routinely check for it because we know the uni almost university positive. We don't routinely check ERPR status, and the ones that are negative are either just no IHC is perfect. We all think IHC is so perfect. <laughs> you know, the ones, uh, you know, this is one of my pet peeves, the tumor board, you know, pathologists, and they're great that we can't do what we do without them. But sometimes they, they think this IHC is so 100%, but we all know there's, there's still false negativity to immunohistochemical staining. So, you know, the ones that are negative are either just falsely negative, just on the methodology, or they may not be low-grade ESS. So, yeah. Great. And, um, so uh, the next question is regarding the um, benefit on uh, lymph node assessment or debulking. Uh, this one's from Christina Ewing from the UK. And she asks, why do you think that lymph node debulking has no benefit in a disease that is not particularly responsive to chemotherapy or radiotherapy? Mary, do you uh, so I, that? I, yeah, so I think that it's it's just two two sort of uh, ways to look at this. If they have normal lymph nodes, uh, doing a lymphadenectomy or lymph node assessment doesn't matter because you know if you're gonna do a comprehensive lymphadenectomy, we know that that has uh, a lot of problems with that potential, you know, especially lymphedema, which we're paying more attention to. And yes, you obviously will have three or four percent will have lymph node disease and. People love to say that removal of that microscopic disease will alter impact, uh, outcomes, but probably not. What will happen is that if there is no three to four percent of cases, they'll develop a noticeable mass, and then you go in and resect the the noticeable nodal masses. I think in the setting where you know you have adenopathy, I think removing the bulky adenopathy is a value. The problem is uh, with this is that these tumors, even though they're um, 
you know, we keep telling low-grade indolent, you know, if they're bulky adenopathy, those are up against the great vessels, the ureter. If you don't take those out over time, they will start to obstruct ureters. They will start to cause palsies from the nerves and then the surrounding areas. And they can start to grow into the vascular system. And we've all seen reports of intravascular ESS resections up to the heart. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a lot of rationale to the bulk grossly involved lymph nodes but I feel there's no value in doing a sort of a, a, a debulking or, or resection of microscopic disease, which will only occur in about three to 4% of patients anyhow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really important point. And uh, actually, two of the patients that I've operated on for benign metastasizing leiomyoma intravascular ultimately ended up being low-grade endometrial stromal sarcomas, not actually a fibroid. So that, that was... Uh, I was thinking that very case that you, you showed me at, I think, uh, SGO years and years ago, you had a video of the, the ventricle <laughs> or the atrium being opened up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think so many people have seen that video. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I want to obviously be respectful of both of your time. So th- this has been really great and I've always enjoyed and learning uh, from 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 you guys and Mary is always uh, great to see you as well. But I want to ask you one last question, um, and then you know certainly for both of you, uh, I think it's it's always very fitting, particularly in, in the sign of the times. Uh, any targeted therapy for uh, for these tumors? I would imagine obviously it's a, it's a rare disease, but is there anything promising besides uh, just uh, you know the, the standard hormonal therapy? for those patients that need adjuvant treatment or that have a recurrence? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it's important to, um, to obtain molecular analyses of, of these tumors. We are now knowing that um, gene fusions, a lot of times are the, are, take responsibility for the development of these. Uh, low-grade ESS is often, um, you find a JJAS fusion, uh, you get YWHAE fusions with high-grade ESSs, there's intract fusions that happen, B-core fusions, I mean, we now have intract inhibitors that are available as a targeted therapy, so it's important if you have a patient with this diagnosis to go down that line and do some further investigating and determine what's driving this and is there uh, the chance for, for use of a dark, targeted or directed therapy. Well, that's great, Evan, because, you know, I, I was I was expecting a, a much shorter answer of, no, there isn't anything that we can target. So that was really great. And uh, and again, I mean, I think that you can see uh, some of those details in the uh, in the manuscript. So really, thank you both so, so much. Uh, always, as I mentioned, it's a, a great opportunity for learning uh, and speaking with you both. And um, uh, thank you once again for accepting our, our invitation. Um, and uh, we look forward to hopefully seeing you both in New York for, for the upcoming meeting. So thank you so much. And Mario, always thank you for all that you contribute to gynecologic oncology. Uh, thank you, guys. Evan, great to see you. Thank you all. Thank you.